Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, so we're going to start this thing up. I'm Amber with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit association based out of Westlock, Alberta. And we're going to be running these networking nights with Greener Pastures Ranching every second Wednesday throughout the winter. So tonight, I'm really excited to have Dr. Richard Bazinet of the University of Toronto with us. Dr. Bazinet has been on our Coffee Shop Talk on the Gateway Research Organization YouTube channel. I first heard him... I don't even know. That was probably three, four years ago at the Organic Alberta Conference. Um, and I was just blown away. They gave him like this small room, you know, to, to speak in. And there were people sitting on the ground <laughs> trying to get into the room uh, just just to hear him speak. And it was well worth it. And every time I have heard him speak since then, it's been great. And then, of course, we have Steve Kenyon, who I know quite well. <laughs> and he's going to kind of host host this as well so yeah Steve you want to talk a little bit about greener pastures no not really but I will um, <laughs> hold on I was trying to do something in chat here you cut me off guard <laughs> anyway yeah no uh thanks for coming out everybody I really appreciate this we started this up last winter when there wasn't much to do in the winter because of the uh every, the closures of just about everything the problem I was having was that all the the conferences that I was speaking at I was talking to a computer screen. I couldn't see anybody. There was, uh, you know, questions and answers. They were even being fed through the moderator. And it just felt so impersonal. And I thought, you know what? Probably 50 to 75% of the education I've had over the last 20 years has come from the networking at conferences, not just the conferences. I mean, the, the speakers are great, but, you know, sitting around the coffee table after or the coffee area or sitting around the, the, the lounge later on that night, that's where the real education happens. And I was just thinking last winter that we lost our networking for the entire winter. So we decided to start, start this up and it's just networking. Uh, there's no formal presentations. We're going to introduce the topic and, and the speaker, uh, you know, every week or every this, this year, it's every second week, but uh, last winter, we did it every week. And we'll just open it up to questions and answers, and it'll be a complete networking night. And uh, boy, it, it was way more successful than we ever thought it would be. So uh, with that being said, um, I'd like to thank the Gateway Research Organization. They kind of host this, and uh, they uh, help fund our speakers that come in and talk. So uh, very appreciative of them. And honestly, most of my education, all the seminars and conferences that I just talked about that I went to over the last 20 years has usually been brought in or, or hosted by one of the applied research associations across Alberta, which uh, grow being one of them. They're very uh, instrumental in, in education on regenerative agriculture in our province anyway. And if you don't have an organization like that in yours, I bet you do. It's a nonprofit organization that uh, you know brings in speakers and does seminars and um, there's lots of different types uh, all over the all over the world, I'm sure, that do the same thing as the uh, Gateway Research Organization. So big shout out to them. Uh, tonight, I'm really excited to hear from Dr. Richard Bazinet. He's a, I'm going to call him a brain scientist. I'm sure it's got a more technical name than that, but I'm a very simple guy, so I, I like that. Um, and we're going to talk about, uh, you know, how some of the nutritional aspects of the agriculture side affect our our bodies and more more importantly probably our brains so uh, Richard I'm going to turn it over to you do a little bit of a introduction of yourself and uh, a little bit about the topic and then we'll kick into this tonight 
Sure. Well, th thank you very much, uh, Stephen Amber, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. I wish we could do this in person again, but but I, I think you're making a good point that these things are can be quite fun, and I'm I'm really happy to be here. So I assume I'm I'm a little bit of an oddball in the list of, of your. Uh, your speakers, a, a brain scientist, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my background and not the normal background, but I'll give you the twist to how I got here. So studied nutrition, studied metabolism at school, uh, went on and did a, a PhD. And, you know, it, it actually comes back to the time of technology. I was <clears throat> giving a, a talk, you know, at a conference as a PhD student, really excited. It was a time when you had to load your PowerPoints up, Steve. You remember those days? And the PowerPoints always crashed. And so it took a while to switch them. So the, the guy after me, his was crashing. So I sat down and, and this guy beside me said, uh, hey, what are you doing after your PhD? And I said, well, you know, I'm studying nutrition metabolism. I would like to do that. And he said, well, I... I run a brain lab, a brain science lab in the U.S. in, in uh, at the NIH. Some of you have heard of it. He said, "Why don't you come down and work with me for a few years?" So that was really neat because we got to combine nutrition and the brain uh, down there, which was a pretty new idea. This was circa 2003. And then I got a job in Toronto and set up a, a group here. And you know, I teach a little bit and I do some research. But, but the, the reason I'm here is because I got a cold call one day from a guy called Mark Schatzker. I don't know if you know him, Steve. He, he wrote a book called Steak. And he called me up and he said, I, I want you to analyze the omega-3s and you know, the fats in my steak. I said, I don't have to do it. You can look it up on the, the USDA has got a thing. We know the composition of, of, of all beef. You know, it's documented. And he said, well, it's, it's not true. Um, my steak, my steak, my beefy grass, and I can't find the numbers. And I, you know, I'm a, a scientist, right? Not a farmer. And remember that when you're asking me questions, everybody. I said, what are you talking about? Cows eat I see them like there's pictures and cows eat grass. And then he started explaining to me the grains. And I was like, wow, that's quite interesting. I didn't realize that. So we analyzed his stuff. I didn't know the literature. There's, there's obviously people who've done this before me, but it was a little shocking to see how uh, how different the composition and nutrient composition of, of beef could be. So we've we've kind of kept this in mind because the it turns out that the the omega threes, depending on how you feed your your beef, are are very similar to the fats in your brain, and that's kind of the connection. Because I'm very interested in how to how we can have better diets for our brains. You know, so many of my colleagues worked on heart disease forever and, you know, nutrition and cancer is a big field and, and they're important fields, but I'm really interested in, in the brain from the psychiatric disorders to things like Alzheimer's disease and how can we have an effect there? So that's kind of who I am and how I got to, uh, to be here, I think. Awesome. Thanks, Richard. You talked about loading PowerPoints that are all messed up and and I was actually just talking to Amber about I, I, mm. I was digging around some of my uh, one of my old filing cabinets and I found my first ever presentation I ever made on the clear plastic slides. Acetates, where you put them yes. on, you put them on the overhead projector and you got to keep switching. them. Yeah, I've still got my very first one. So which that, means we're probably similar age. You look pretty young, too, though. I, a little <laughs> bit of gray on the side there, but I got my gray is coming in the beard. I keep it short. I keep it short. That way you yeah. don't see it. It's just our boyish charm. Just leave it at that. 
so yeah, we're we're going to try and talk about the the you know uh, the health aspect of food tonight. The very first time that I was ever exposed to this you know omega three fatty acid profile thing was actually I was very young, and I was very upset at it. I was very mad, and I fought it all the time because I had to eat a cod liver oil pill in my banana every day when I was little. I didn't know why. This was such a strange thing for me as a child, and then I found out like. 25 or 30 years later, I went to a conference and I heard about this fella uh, called Dr. Weston Price, who he was like a dentist in like the 30s or 40s or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but he went around the world and and studied different nutritional aspects of different cultures and found out basically the quick version, found out that the healthy teeth, because he was a dentist, come from cultures that eat a lot of natural animal fats, right? Whether they were in the tropics eating fish or in the, uh, you know, way up north eating uh, seal blubber uh, or, you know, whatever else in between. And it was this, this healthy animal fats was, was the key. So now there's the Dr. West, uh, Weston Price Foundation that keeps pushing the benefits of grass-fed meat all over. Um, but yeah, my very first uh, thought about years later, like I didn't know why I was eating a cod liver oil pill way back then, right? When I was a kid. So yeah, that was a big change for me. And then I, I started uh, digging into it. And the, the, probably the first place that I, you know, learned anything from it was actually a website called eatwild.com. Her, eat her wild. Yeah. Eatwild.com. Yeah. Uh, Joe Robinson is her name and she's been, and it's still up. I, you know, I haven't looked at it in years probably, but it's, it's still up. I double checked. And uh, that was where I first got into this. And then all of a sudden it just, there was a, you know, every time you think, you know, something, you know, you learn one more thing in a conference and then there's a whole new big area that you have to study. Well, that was one of them. That was a huge area that all of a sudden, like everything I've been told, you know, all through growing up and all through college. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily true. And all of a sudden, this whole world of omega-3s and things opened up to me. So yeah, it was an amazing educational tour for me too, through the through the beef side of it. And then the difference between grass-fed and grain-fed and the flavors and the omega-3s. And yeah, pretty, pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, Richard, you know this. can I ask if you would kind of tell people a little bit about what your findings have been and kind of your your work that you've done with grass-fed meats? Sure, sure. So I, I'll just give people a little bit of a little bit of more context and then I'll get into that. So everybody knows what body fat is, unfortunately. You, you can grab you can grab it around a bunch of places and squeeze it and you can feel it. And I think everybody knows you get a little too much of it and it's a risk factor for heart disease or something, right? Richard, well, you don't people, look like you have that problem. I, I try. I'm going through my midlife crisis. I'm, I'm trying to, to exercise and do these things uh, more, which will give you another hint about my age. But uh, what people don't realize is your brain is about as fat as your body fat. Okay. It's, it's very close. There's a catch, though. The, the, your body fat sometimes it's what we call a little bit more saturated. Maybe we'll get into these words later, but your brain's got a lot of these omega 3s. And, and the connection, people have probably heard fish is good brain food. It's because the omega-3s in fish uh, are, are, you know, basically the type of fat in your brain. So one's uh, uh, your, your body fat's like a, more like a butter and your, your brain is, is more uh, like a fish. And, and it's really neat because it helps those nerves and, and things fire really quickly and, and go uh, 
or that way. And now I've lost my train of thought, Amber. You asked me a question and I was going to connect the dots and I cannot remember the dots. <laughs> the question I, was if you could talk a little bit about your research regarding grass-fed beef or grass-fed meats. Grass meat. Richard, that's perfectly fine. I do it all the time. I completely go off topic and I don't have a clue what the question is. So you're right on, you're right on track. <laughs> All right. A great start. Obviously, you know, I need to, to, to write notes or something. But yeah, so we've been interested in my group in general on how to get omega-3s to your brain. And, and lots of people, you know, fish is a good source of that. But not everybody likes fish. And, you know, you go talk to an ecologist and they'll tell you there's only so much fish in the ocean. Uh, so you have to be careful with telling everybody just eat fish. And then it's, well, how else can we do this? And and my comment with, with Mark uh, Schatzker is, is of interesting because, you know, we had dismissed a lot of uh, animals as be, being potential sources of omega-3s because of, uh, and I got, I'm going to watch my wording around everybody here, because of what I'll call the commodity system. And, and, you know, most of the stuff people go buy on the shelf doesn't have it because of what they feed, what they feed the animals. Mark shows me that there's, there, it's a little different. And then, you know, what do I know? There's, there's a farmer down the road in Toronto doing it, right? And then there's another farmer I find out doing it. And then there's, there's all these people doing it. And there, it's not just beef. I don't have to tell you it's chickens, it's pork. And people are doing all these different feeding practices. And then, you know, I go to a, I find out you're actually having a conference, right, Amber? And you, you guys have people and you talk about these things and there's enough people to have conferences. I'm a neuroscientist. I don't, I don't follow that stuff. But what we, we started doing was, was kind of just for fun to some extent. I actually still don't have funding for this. But I said, well, let's, let's figure this out a little bit better. Let's start cataloging this and, and getting a handle on this in, in my own hands. One thing about research is you can read about something, but if you're going to do something with it, you always got to do it yourself. So we basically said, hey, Let's get people to, you know, send us some samples and we'll uh, we'll analyze them. Now, when you analyze a sample, there's there's a couple little things you got to be careful of. I'm going to measure the omega threes in a beef sample and I'm going to compare it to the omega sixes, which are the things that are in grains that we probably feed too much of sometimes. And and so I'm going to measure the ratio of of omega sixes to omega threes or or threes to sixes, but we'll say sixes to threes. And I'm going to tell you it's a number and I'm going to say it's five. That's not helpful if you don't know what you're comparing it to, right? So what we had to do is we had to go buy commodity uh, beef. So just stuff we can get in the supermarkets here in Toronto. And we had to compare the two. And sixes to threes in commodity beef, you know, was coming in around 30 to one. So there's for every molecule of omega-6s, for every 30 omega-6s, there's only one omega-3. And then what happens is when you get into these pasture-raised animals or grass-fed animals, that was dropping to closer to five to one. So I don't want to get all mathy on people, but when when the omega-6s come down and the omega-3s go up, that ratio comes closer to one. And those were big differences we were seeing. So, the, but there were a couple of fun things we had to do uh, as we, you know, got broader out is you got to be careful because when you start doing this, people will send you different parts of the animal. So you got to normalize it, right? You got to say, well, if we're going to do this just for fun, I can't have somebody be sending me this part and somebody sending me that part. So we went with the ribeye for, for a couple good reasons. Okay. Yeah. It, 
one, it's delicious, but but seriously, people recognize it, right? And and most people know that cut. It's not some cut that that's too obscure. The other thing is, and it's important, is we wanted to get people interested in this. And I'm in downtown Toronto. Don't hold that against me. But there's a lot of restaurants here, and if we want to get the restaurants and the chefs thinking about this, that's that's the cut uh, we should we should get them in. Lastly. When I analyze, and don't tell anybody this, this part's the secret, okay? When I analyze these uh, stakes on what's called a gas chromatograph, this fancy machine, guess how much material I need? Anybody want to take a guess how many, how much I need? Steve, you, you look like you're good at guessing. Not very much. So, it's, so not very much. So a fraction of my fingernail, I could run 10,000 times. So that means I got a good piece of meat left over, right? Uh, to, 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 to play with this. So that's the perk of doing this. We don't need very much and, and we get some left over. But what we found, uh, Amber, is essentially that, yeah, there's, when animals are raised a certain way, they have more omega-3s and less omega-6s. So this ratio ends up being low because I'm doing the ratio backwards so we don't get into decimals uh, compared to you know the commodity system. And, and that's interesting for maybe two reasons. One is I can tell if somebody's cheating or made a mistake. So I can go into my grocery store and I can say, can I have a piece of grass-fed beef? And I can take it and give it to one of my grad students because I actually don't know how to do any of this stuff anymore uh, and say, analyze this for me. And they analyze it and they run it. And if it's five to one or three to one, I'm like, yeah, it's, that's 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 a grass fed steak. But if it's 30 to one, we got a problem. And just for fun, you know, we've, we've done this a lot and we probably find that about one out of every 10 times, maybe one out of every 20, we get an oops. Like that doesn't fit. And I don't want to overinterpret that because, you know, these experiments aren't aren't super controlled. We go into a grocery store and we say or a butcher and say, can we have that cut uh, grass fed? And if they have it, we take it. But I don't know where the mistake happened. Right. So I, I don't know if the the person coming in had a couple too many beers the night before, put the wrong one in the wrong place, handed the wrong one or some little slip up. So I don't want to get too too accusing but but we get hiccups but most of the time it's right the other thing and the thing that's more interesting for me is we're we're really trying to feed more omega-3s uh and do studies to to see how omega-3s affect the brain and this gives us another tool to do that i think and and don't get me right a, a ribeye on a friday night once a month isn't going to make a difference right but but that's not what i'm interested in what about if we change all your beef towards uh, the, this pasture-raised stuff or grass-fed stuff. What if we also change your milk and your pork? And we see this in all the animals. Then I think that's how nutrition works. We can start making bigger steps forward and getting more omega-3s, I think, to the brain. We haven't done this yet, but but that's the, the idea we would like to go forward with. And then ultimately, we believe that through nutrition, there are health consequences to having uh, more omega-3s. Uh, you know, it started off in the 1970s, two Danes went up to Greenland and they noticed, you know, they weren't having heart attacks. And they they basically said, well, it's because they're eating fish and seal and and 
that's nice. And then they also realized the fish and seal had a lot of omega-3s. And that's probably a little related, Steve, to why you were taking cod liver oil, just, just a little bit related to that, that kind of research. And it turned out some Germans had found out that there was actually a lot of omega-3s in the brain, but they wrote a paper in German. And nobody read it for 30 years. And so it took us a little bit longer. I wasn't around back then uh, to realize that there's this relationship between omega-3s in the brain as well. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at with with the animal products and the grass fed things, Amber. So a, a little bit of a personal story here, Richard. Um, I have a son who's diagnosed with a learning disability and ADHD. Yeah. And one of the neuro or uh, naturopath doctors that we went to recommended that we up his omega three supplementation. Okay, we were already doing grass fed pork and grass-fed beef as much as we can but because of his condition they recommended to, to up his his omega-3 so we had a supplement we were giving him two omega-3 capsules of the triple strength every meal so he was getting six a day um, equivalent compared to what my daughters were getting we were giving them one of the little kid ones Right. And I actually added up the doses and everything else compared to the little kid ones that you're supposed to give a child versus what Andrew was getting. He would have been eating 54 of those little ones a day. So, I mean, they just told me to really boost it up to help his condition because it's a it's a brain issue. Right. He wasn't getting it. And he said the, the naturopath doctor said to me that the kids with ADHD, they don't absorb it as well. So, you know, of all that extra omega-3s that I'm feeding him, most of it's not getting to him. That's why we had to give him so much. And that was, you know, interesting to me. I don't have any scientific background behind it or anything like that, but that's what the doctor told me to do. Any thoughts on that at all? Yeah. So that's exactly what we're interested in. We're interested in which of these brain disorders, you know, I don't think we're going to cure brain disorders with omega-3s, right? Uh, which ones though, can we help improve the symptoms? And then the thing I'm actually really interested in is, is as in aging, brain disorders of the aging, like Alzheimer's disease, I think treating Alzheimer's disease is very complicated. I think it's a tough job. I feel sorry for anybody going through that. But what I'd like to do is if we well, going forward, can we prevent Alzheimer's disease or decrease the incidence of it? So that's the exact kind of thing uh, we're, we're interested in. But there, there's a catch with this. And you probably saw it. it. That's a lot of omega-3s. It's got a little bit of a cost to it. Maybe you saw some improvements. Maybe you didn't. I, I don't know. But it probably wasn't dramatic. And so the idea is, how can we optimize that? And then if we're going to put that out against a whole population, and make recommendations for everybody to do it. How do we do that? And I don't think supplements are the way to go for everybody. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is there's not enough fish in the sea to make fish oil supplements for everybody. People are working on technologies, maybe they can do that. But the other thing is, <clears throat> I always worry that people take a supplement and say, I took my supplement, I don't have to worry, I can go have my soft drink and my triple cheeseburger tonight with, with some extra french fries because I took my supplement, right? And so I tend to like the food is first approach because we got to eat anyways. So if we're going to eat, we might as well eat healthy. But, but the idea there is basically, and we've been part of the groups that have shown this, is that the omega-3s, if you can get more into the brain, they kind of act like aspirin, if I can say that. And, and they decrease inflammation in the brain. And we think that Information in the brain 
even just a little bit over a long period of time creates problems. I don't know that to be true. The brain's hard to study and a lot of these disorders are hard to study, but that's, that's the general idea around it. And, and, you know, therapeutically, uh, if you want to get them into the brain quickly, taking those large doses is, is an approach to that, that works quite well. And there's a whole nother game you opened up there. My mom actually went into a home with, uh, <clears throat> Alzheimer's quite young. I think she was about 50, uh, 58 or something. And I, I actually, right away, I said, okay, I would like to change her diet. I will supply all the grass-fed beef, all the grass-fed pork. Um, I would like to, you know, help her. But of course, in the home, that would mean they have to do a special meal for her and they it wasn't allowed, right? So I, can, I can't do anything to help her with with any of that. So um, that was that was a difficult time for me to get through that. I mean, I wanted to help and I can't, they, they won't let me. So. Yeah. I, and you know, that's the way those institutions are set up. What I would like to do, and, and to some extent, some of my colleagues have done this and we've looked at stages, not treat the patient when they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, but let's back it up 20 years and, and get into the idea. Can we prevent these things? And, and I see some, some things coming in and, and yeah, there's, there's a, uh, you know, it's not just beef, but in Canada, we have flax. Canola is actually not a bad source of omega-3s. Uh, th- there's lots of these things. And I think we got lots of tools that we can use uh, to help get a bit more of these in the diet. Shorty had a question, which ties in really nicely to what you guys are talking about here. So, Shorty, you want to go ahead? Yes. Good evening. Um, so, this is very topical for me right now because my mother has early onset Alzheimer's as well. So she's on cod liver oil, salmon oil, and flaxseed oil supplements, all trying to help with her her memory. But what, do you need to eat a certain amount of fat or a certain kind of fat in order for these supplement omegas to absorb? And also do uh, other aromatics, things like thyme and rosemary, do those help with the absorption as well? Yeah, so there's a few things with with omega-3s. Their absorption is generally pretty good, generally pretty good. And you can tell this because your your, your poo never smells like fish, basically, right? So they, they, they you, you usually absorb them. If you're going to take high doses, it's probably better to take them with a meal, not on their own. Uh, and you'll that, that'll help their absorption a little bit. The other thing is anybody's ever taken a fish oil supplement, and, and this goes to your next point, Shorty, is if you if you burp, it'll often smell like fish. And and that's an issue sometimes because of oxidation. And so aromatics and and plant compounds, uh, antioxidants can can help with that a little bit. And we think that's probably a good thing for stability. I'll back up and and just connect this back to to beef. To some extent, and it it doesn't work that well, you could feed cows fish oil and get a little bit more omega-3s in them. Cows aren't the best, but you could do it with pork uh, a little easier. That's one way of doing it. But but when you feed the pure fish oils, you don't get the aromatics into the animal. And I haven't done this, but I'm told if you do this with pork for too long and, you know, you, you, you... you cook it a certain way, it'll smell a little off and it'll taste a little funny. But if you let the pork do it on pasture, where it's getting the the all these plant compounds and aromatics from grass and all the things it's eating, 
it's it's a lot more stable and in in fact i think the flavor is absolutely outstanding so it's kind of the, a similar idea that i think eating a good diet with a lot of antioxidants and aromatics uh, can help the stability of these these compounds one thing i learned is don't try and add omega omega 3 liquid or like liquid supplement to spaghetti sauce cuz the kids don't want to eat it yeah, you can't hide that stuff. It's uh, you know, oxidized. So the way this works is at one end, you got butter or coconut fat or, or, or lards, which are solid at room temperature. And you can leave them quite a while before they go bad. They will go bad, but in the fridge, you know, you can leave butter for, for quite a while. Then you get like vegetable oils that are more liquidy. You start leaving them out too long or in the sunlight or these kinds of things, they'll go bad quite quickly. Then when you start getting the omega-3s, so I, I've seen, you know, uh, some hemp oil or flaxseed oil. Actually, flaxseed oil is great because if you buy it, it comes in a, a dark container. And it, if you have it too long, you forget about it, it's it's awful. It starts smelling like, like paint, basically, right? At the more extreme end, you got sushi. And that stuff's only good for hours <laughs> because it's got the fish oils in it. And if they're in the air, that stuff will go bad quickly. And, and I think it's really important that you realize that because it tells you, don't eat me, right? And when you start smelling these oxidized lipids, it's, it's the canary in the coal mine saying, hey, there's probably some bacteria here. There's probably some E. coli. Don't go there. We don't need, it's not worth the risk right now. You mean the gas station sushi is probably not a good idea? I, I I don't do gas station sushi. I don't do discount sushi or gas station sushi. I have my rules. I also worry about eating sushi in the in like the Midwest or landlocked places. But I'm sure you can fly it in fresh. I'm sure you can do it quickly. But it's it's uh, you know in in Japan they're they're cutting that stuff fresh for a reason. You know, I um, in the coffee shop talk, you talk a little bit about uh, your olfactory sen senses and stuff, and then bringing up the the idea of food going bad and how our sense of smell really works towards keeping us safe. And it was interesting because back in September, I caught COVID and I lost my sense of smell. Yeah. And I have Stephen and our kids always come up to me and they're like, "Can you smell this and tell me if it's bad or good?" And I was like. <laughs> I can't do that, but it's really true. Like when you lose that ability, it changes everything. <laughs> yeah. So Amber, I bet you, you also lost your sense of taste. I did. Yeah. Okay. So th this is wild and we've, this is a big thing with COVID. So, but it, it connects to food. So you, you really don't taste food with your tongue. You do a little bit. Your tongue can get sugar. It can get salt, sour, bitter, a couple of things. 99% of what you're going on when you're eating a good meal, 99.9, I'm just making up numbers, it doesn't matter, um, is, is smell. But it's weird because you smell it, but you think you're tasting it, right? And, and so the way you can prove this is... Um, I, I think I saw Casey had a beer earlier uh, on the show. I don't know if he's still got one or if he's on his second one. Casey uh, better not, but Colin did. Casey's the daughter. Oh, Casey's the, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I just see the name. So so I really hope, you, you, thank you for that correction. But, but you can do this at home. Take some food, rinse out your mouth with water, you know, have a clean palate, okay? 
blocking O's, they sound like this, which which people can see that, but I think they could hear that even if it's just on a podcast. Block your nose, so you sound silly. Take a peppermint, take some food, something flavorful, okay? Something pretty flavorful. Put it in your mouth and chew it with your nose closed. Uh, and when you're about halfway done, you know, like, oh, I'm chewing this, I got a you know, few more bites to go. Unblock, I guess that's a word. Uh, let your nose out, breathe, and bam. That's when you're going to taste the peppermint, right? But it has nothing to do with your tongue. It was always on your tongue. It's coming back through your nose. So you know that reflex you have when you drink water and laugh, Steve? And, and it comes, the water comes out your nose? It's not, it's not to stop you from drowning when you're laughing. It's actually designed because you smell the, the food um, and the vapors of the food coming out the back of your throat and out your nose. And when you smell them, your brain registers them as taste. So not only will you taste the food but if you can pay attention while you're doing this experiment you're going to say but it feels like it's on my tongue it's actually on your nose your nose is smelling it but for whatever reason our brain's wired a funny way and you think you're tasting it so that's why nobody's probably thought about this because yeah i i get it if you block your nose you can't taste food if you have a bad cold if you have covid you can't taste food but it's more than just that. It's you actually think you're tasting it with your tongue because your brain's tricking you and you're really smelling the food. And so you smell flavors of foods. Uh, I have a question on that. From a dietary perspective, does that impact like I'm a woman and I get cravings for, for random things like chocolate or salty foods, or does that impact like a, a need for certain nutrients within the food? Uh, let me give you some indirect evidence. The food industry has said, wait a second, um, you know, and my friend wrote a book on this. They, they, they essentially said, you know, we can take um, a, a taco chip and you can put some tomatoes and olives and whatever you want on it, and some cheese, and, and you can chew that and get a nice flavor and enjoy that perspective. Or we can just cut a corner and take the taco chip and sprinkle some flavoring on it and you chew it and your brain thinks yeah obviously you know because you're conscious that this this potato chip now that has all these flavorings actually there's none of that in there and, you, and you're just getting the 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 sensory perception that it's there why is this important well maybe when you're eating the taco chip uh with the tomatoes and the onions and all these little things uh it had some other nutrition in it right and you chew up that nutrition and you start digesting a little bit in your, 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 your mouth. And then you start breathing it back out and your brain says, ah, I, I know what that is. That's a, that's a vitamin I need, or that's a, you know, some other molecules I need. I like that. Eat more of it. Now though, you grab that chip and it's just got the things that your brain recognizes, but there's none of the vitamins in it. So, so you eat these things and your brain says, ah, this is good for me. I recognize that. But, but but the food industry is essentially tricking your brain. And then so you eat more of it and you more of it. And sometimes your, your body's saying like, I'm not getting it. And your brain's like, yeah, you are. I can smell it. And and you can get these mismatches. So so I think th there's a lot to this. And your brain is um, 
smelling things and recognizing smells like there's kind of two schools of this it's one is you know it's the dish that your mother made for you and when you walked in the house after school you smelled it and that's the best dish you'll ever had and that's been imprinted in your brain the other thing is your brain's trying to look for things maybe that that you might need and it does that kind of like a dog to some extent by smelling uh, and, and when it gets the smells it wants, it just usually associates them with the things that were supposed to be in those foods, recognizing now that the food industry can trick you every so long with some of those things. We went to a, I think it was a grade six science fair. My daughter was in it and we were walking around and all these, you know, little upcoming science nerds. One of the group, there was a couple of girls from a totally different school. I, they, they weren't even from our school. They did this little experiment where you had to sit down in a chair and, and be blindfolded. And then they gave you certain things to smell. And you had to tell them whether it was real or fake. And the one example I remember is that they, they put up an actual real orange to your nose. You could smell what an orange smells like. And then they held up, uh, you know, some kind of orange substitute. It was, you know, it was so many additives and you know flavorings you had to tell which one was real and 90 percent of the people picked the fake one because that's wow. what we're we're you know this i think the, you're kind of referring to the dorito effect wasn't that a a, a book or a story that's or something? the name of the book yeah yeah, yeah there you go the name of the book. yeah, yeah. yeah. and effect. and that's what yeah. it is it, it's tricking our brains for for this to smell or taste like the real thing when it really isn't the real thing and that's uh, honestly, my opinion is that's the wrong direction, right? The fact that that experiment worked, those little grade six kids proved that 90% of the people pick the fake stuff because that's what they're used to. Like that's a, that's a major issue in our health, you know, our healthcare system Our ah, it, it bothered me for a long time. And that's also why I'm a little tough on supplements, right? Because it's it's a bit of that shortcut approach. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there aren't cases when, when you shouldn't take supplements, but it's a bit of that shortcut approach because you, your brain always ate, your mouth always ate fish uh, and, and your brain detected the omega-3s coming from it, right? And, and there's a lot of other stuff in the fish. There's proteins, all these things. And when we start taking these shortcuts and, and sometimes you have to take them, you're not getting the full package uh, with, with some of these things. So yeah, and, and it tells you something that, you know, we're, we're in a society where maybe these people, you know, orange crush is, is the natural smell of orange as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a, a clementine or something like that. It's, it's, it's really quite fascinating. Some of them, they do well. Like, I think, you know, orange is a pretty good one. I find banana, the fake banana flavor doesn't smell like a banana at all. That's just me. <laughs> and vanilla is not bad. You know, vanilla, they've got that one pretty good. It, it tricks me up a little bit. Yeah, I have issues with bananas still. They all taste like cod liver oil to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that science experiment um, really uh, it made me think I'm really weird because I had the two oranges and I found the fake one just absolutely disgusting. It It like... Yeah, almost put me into a meltdown just having to smell this thing. And uh, yeah, meanwhile, apparently that was one most people chose, which was interesting. We have Larry with a question. There's Larry. Does, does kelp have omega-3 in it? Yeah it, it, yeah, it does. Uh, you know, they vary. Um, all, all the seaweeds. Um, so, so the way this basically works 
is you, you've got most of the grasses, whether the grass on land or grass in the water has, has some omega-3s and they're not getting into molecules, but they're a little shorter than the ones um, that would be in fish. Um, and so what fish do is actually weird is they get it from algae. Algae can make these, fish oil is actually an algae, but we don't call it algae oil because fish eat the algae and they get it. But you can eat the kelp and you can eat some of these other omega-3s and then your liver literally can turn them to to the fish oils that you, you'd see in your brain. They kind of go that way. My question was, I feed kelp to my chickens and my cows because yeah. I, think it's got, I think it's got good minerals in it, but am I upping the omega-3s in my cattle and chickens? Yeah, and so so going back to what, what uh, I think Shorty said, you're also giving them a lot of plant compounds, a lot of antioxidants. You know, kelp's a complicated little thing. There's a, a lot going on to it. So you get the omega-3s, and chickens are really good at changing those omega-3s and putting them in the eggs and doing that kind of stuff. And you're also getting all the antioxidants, so your chickens probably don't taste fishy uh, when you do it with that approach. Whereas if you gave them a lot of fish oil, you might you might get that. I feed uh, sea salt and kelp. That's all I've ever given my cattle for minerals and my, and my goats too. And I seem to have less health problems than my animals that I've ever had. I've done it for five years. I don't even get pink eye, but uh, yeah. I don't know whether that's contributed to or not. Well, well, the you know, I don't tend to think of, of, of veterinary health. It's just not the way I work. But mm. but the idea would, you know, if we can extrapolate from humans to animals, usually we go the other way. We do rats to humans, right, or something. But the, the idea is by giving them these omega-3s, you're, you're helping their immune system. Uh, that was, So my PhD was actually uh, Shergain, a feed company that was owned by Maple Leaf, was having was having issues with um, segregated early weaning as a as a method to get pigs to grow quicker. Wean them earlier, they segregated them and they grew faster. But if they got an infection, they were doomed. The whole do you call it a herd of pigs or uh, yeah. I don't want to get the wrong. Yeah. Yep. So they they would all get sick, right? So we were looking at giving them omega threes to improve their immune function in their diets. And and so I think what you're doing is kind of a natural way of doing that by giving them by giving them kelp to get more omega-3s, pink eye and some of these things to some extent, not totally, are infectious and inflammatory diseases. And, and you, know, you, you might see some benefits from that for sure. Thank you. Larry, I might add to that a little bit. One of the reasons why I started feeding kelp years ago was actually I went to the school by Gerald Fry. He actually passed away a few years ago, but he was an yes. amazing fellow. Um, and he talked about if you have a pink eye breakout to replace your mineral with kelp meal, straight kelp meal. And I think the big reason on that is because kelp meal is so loaded in minerals and vitamins, mm. right? It, it's, it's got everything in it, kind of like uh, our stinging nettle out here, yes. right? It just has so much in it that it, it balances out the mineral compound. So I don't, I'm not going to take away from the omega-3 side of it, but maybe it's just the, the, the massive amount of everything that it is. It's just a very healthy food. The other side to that is uh, maybe Richard could clarify this too. Omega-3s, the only thing that can manufacture omega-3s is, is, is it not the chloroplasts of the plant? Yeah. So I didn't want to get into this too much, but there's plants. Omega-3s are what we call essential fats. So saturated fat, you can, you don't need to eat it. You can make it in your body and you can, you can grow it. You can get overweight up with it. 
uh, without ever having them. But the omega-3s are what we, and omega-6s to some extent, to the same extent, uh, are essential. And they're in, essential in your diet because you can't make them. And only plants can put, um, it's an omega-3 double bond. Uh, only plants can start us off with that omega-3. And then what happens is plants usually stop at a certain length of omega-3, 18 carbons long. And then either the, you know, the fish or the, um, our livers can change them into 20 and 22 carbon long ones, which are the one, the one of the ones is accumulates in your brain. So yeah, you're right. We can't make omega-3s from scratch. You have to ingest them from plants somehow, either that's through the meat where the animals ate the good grasses or can we get it from from eating plants plants itself? Yes, you can get them from eating plants themselves, especially kind of green leafy plants. Flaxseed is kind of a famous plant source uh, of omega-3s. What's the comparison? Do we, is it easier to get through the plants or is it easier to get through the meat? Like as a human, if we were trying to up our omega-3s, should we eat grass-fed chicken or should we eat flax? So so it's a rigged question. You can get grass-fed chicken. Not everybody can get it, right? So, so, so it's a, it's a tricky question. If if you go down in the big grocery stores uh, in in Toronto and the suburbs of Toronto, good luck finding pasture raised chicken. Uh, I'm not saying you won't, but good luck. I don't know if it's the same where you where you are. Yeah, it's, it's expensive, and it's just not there. So you got to go to the here, right? You got to go to the farmers markets or know a farmer or get something. Uh, delivered to you to get it. So so for most people, I think it's easier for them to eat the plants or the fish because they can't get the pasture-raised meats. They're just not available. For, for you guys that have a farm that do this and probably have lots of friends that do this, it's you've got another tool that you can use. And I think that's important because, you know, to some extent, people yell, um, Hey, you know, we're eating too much meat. Stop eating meat, become vegetarian, become vegan, blah, blah, blah. Sure. They can say that you get your mega threes, but, but I think that these pasture raised meats are kind of a, here's, here's a pun in two ways. Amber like this way, a gateway meat uh, in, in the sense that they're, they're kind of in the middle here. And, and I think the ethics is interesting. The ecology is interesting. The environmental, you know, there's lots of things you can talk about, about these that you, you guys all know more than me. But I think it's, a, it's an interesting tool when, when you have somebody that's maybe eating too much meat, which I think you can do, to say to those people, that become a vegetarian tomorrow, you know, or vegan, like, you got this. Like, it's not going to happen. But maybe we can use these kinds of products as kind of a middle ground for, for some of these people to, to help them get a step or two in the right direction of their diet, recognizing that, you know, you, they're not going to go to an extreme measure uh, with that. So, oh, there's so many questions I want to ask, but everyone else has questions and they're they're first. So, Shorty, leave, leave you're one. Leave me to go to one that was missed. OK, if, if, if it's all right. Somebody, I think it was SL, and I don't know everybody's names, made a comment, and it was a great one. They did some sensory evaluation work, and they're saying, you know, you put a blindfold on somebody, and it, it's just hard to do. Uh, and I, just because we were talking about this, we were talking about the oranges. It's really hard to do unless you're a professional, okay? And I teach this study in my class um, from the University of Bordeaux. 
A, yes, there's a university in Bordeaux. And guess what? They studied wine at the University of Bordeaux. <laughs> but what, what they did was they trained people like us to, to taste red wines, smell red wines. And, you know, they smell like cherries and licorice and, you know, dark chocolate. And then they got people to smell white wines. And, you know, they smell like lemons and light colored fruits and lychees and stuff like that. And so people were good at this and they'd show it to them and they'd smell it and be like, yeah, it's a red wine. They write down their notes and that's a white wine. They write down their notes. But then they put I, I love the French. They put red food coloring in the white wine and people completely messed it up. And they said it, it tastes like cherry. It smells like cherries. It smells like strawberries and all things you'd associate with red wine. So I just going back to that comment. Yeah. You seeing food uh, has a big effect to, on, on, you, you know, your brain sees something coming and your brain starts making calculations and says, okay, this is what I'm going to get. And it expects something, right? And and that bias it creates can be massive. So much it can throw your it can throw your rate off. So I just wanted to go back to that, Amber, uh, before before we lost that one. That's awesome. I I Steve has to put up with me quite often because I have a very strong sense of smell, although it's been a little bit less since I had COVID. So maybe that's a good <laughs> thing. But I would literally wake up to the smell of him boiling water for tea. Like it it was the smell of the water boiling that woke me up and it would drive him crazy. (laughs) So it, yeah, it happens. I I took it as, I, I think our brains send signals when something's off and I tend to be hypersensitive. So if something seems a little bit off, it'll completely, yeah, throw me out of whack and, it's good thing is if anything's ever burning or on fire, she'll wake up and, and save the family. So I'm good with that. <laughs> it's that, good. That yeah. Shorty had a question though. Shorty, what's your question? Well, getting back to that sensory one, it was me. I was the one doing that in university and it's tough. Holy moly. If you can't see it, but you can just smell it. Oh, I got, I rarely got any of them right. Um, my question, you've already kind of talked about it already, but do different plant types like grasses versus forbs, which are just broadleafs, or woody, woody plants or shrubs, do they have different levels of omega-3s? Is one plant better than an, another? We've already talked about flax as being an excellent source. I, I'm looking to, to see, is there something I can feed to my cattle that will increase the omega-3 factor of the beef? You know, it, it, this is an embarrassing moment for the for the scientists, right? So uh, I, I had this great thing. I went out to a, a farm called Blackview Farm, who, who's in grass-fed beef, and I I watched them because it's kind of cool to do that. I don't get to watch uh, cows do this, and and I was watching how the the grass, and so I um, and he was kind of moving them around, and so I'm going to go run to this little pasture of grass. And I'm going to grab some grass uh, before they get to it. And I'm going to take it to my lab and analyze it. And then when I look down, and, and this is terrible, because I, I like to consider myself outdoorsy in these things. I, there's so many types of grass down there. It was, it was like a, it was a, a forest, right? So the, I think the answer is they vary, but, but they're off the charts. So grass is absolutely full of omega-3s, almost no matter what kind it is. The, the exceptions get into things is more when you get into the seeds that things start to change. And so some seeds like 
corn doesn't have a lot of omega-3s. It has a, a lot of omega-6s and safflower seeds have a lot of omega-6s, not a lot of omega-3s, but whereas flax seeds are, are an exception on the other end and chia seeds and uh, salba uh, and, and hemp uh, to an extent have, have more omega-3s. But the grasses, to the there's probably an exception somewhere. We did a study uh, with, a, with somebody down the road here at Ryerson looking at uh, the effective temperature on grasses and omega-3s, and they're all quite a bit of omega-3. So if you look at that, ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s, you know, I was saying uh, grain-fed beef is 30 to 1, grass-fed beef is 5 to 1 or 3 to 1. Grass itself is 0.3. And the reason it's a zero and I talk about omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is because everything's got more omega-6s in it than omega-3s, with the exception of grass. Grass actually has more omega-3s in it than omega-6s. So that's why you get that zero in there. So there are probably are subtle differences between different types types of grasses, Kentucky bluegrass versus something else, but they're way off the charts in the sense that they're, they're full of omega-3s almost across the board. So a lot of the grains are very high in omega-6 compared to threes, right? Corn, wheat, barley, oats. Yeah. So here's a question, Steve. Why do we call them grains? I don't know. Why do we call no, them grains? I don't grains? know either. I, Anybody else? Uh, because grain makes flour, which makes bread. I don't know where that came from originally, but yeah. My guess would be because a grain is something small. Oh, I'm going to guess there's a, some type of Latin root that that makes sense of that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't work in, in agriculture, so I don't, I don't know why they do that, like oats and these things. But yeah, a couple of the grains, corn being the big one, which I think if my understanding is we use a bit more in Ontario than uh, you guys would out there, uh, it can have an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of 200 to 1. And, you know, it's, it's off the charts in the other direction. And, you know, the, the cow is, a to some extent, buffers this. It's never going to be 200 to 1. It's never going to be 0 0.3. It kind of moderates it out a little bit through the, through the rumen and uh, a lot of the digestion that, that goes on. Etienne's up next. So my question is... Have you guys studied wild game compared to the grass-fed stuff? I know Steve put up a comment saying that around the uh, grain fields, it might be similar, but I know for a fact that wild game is much better at selecting from a bunch of different sources and everything. So I'm wondering, even with all the ag fields around, like say for white-tailed deer, they could eat as much as they want of that corn or whatever. But um, have you guys looked at how much they balance it all or whatever? I'm pretty sure they wouldn't gorge out on that corn to the point of getting the balance of a feedlot animal or something. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we've looked at a little bit. My dad, my dad hunts deer and he gets me a, a, a piece every so long and I'll analyze it just for fun. And they, they generally, we've done deer, uh, moose, a handful of birds. They generally look like the pasture grass raised things. They, they tend to be variable, and I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's the deer that's hanging around the cornfield for too long. But but it's but it's not like a, a, a farm raised deer on grain. It, it's somewhere in the middle, or or more variable, uh, going both ways. So, yeah, the, the only thing I'll say that makes it a little tricky with some of the game is they tend to be leaner. So it just gets a little tricky because they have less fat but more of it is omega-3 so it's it's a tricky little you know th they tend to be leaner kind of meats uh, uh in that respect but you're absolutely right 
they, they tend to look more like pasture raised animals, but they tend to be a little bit more variable. And it's probably because they're, they're eating what they can. Right. So as far as your health goes when you eat it, would eating pasture animals be on par as eating a 100% wild game diet as far as nutrients and all, say a balance 100%. Obviously, if you eat only lean venison, you're going to run out of something. But say someone yeah. could balance it out all of, all out of wild game, would an all pasture diet be very, very similar? Or is there still a human error in there that can't match with nature does naturally? It's a good question. So I, from an omega-3 perspective and a handful of the nutrients I know, the, the way I would look at it is the at one end, way down the road, you got the commodity meats. At the other end of the road, you've you've probably got the, the pasture-raised stuff and the wild stuff close together. And, and there's probably something different in the wild uh, in some other phytochemical or something that we haven't measured yet that they're, they're getting on. And, and it'd be fun to talk about, you know, the difference between or study the difference between pasture-raised meats and wild meats, but recognizing that that difference is going to be a lot smaller than the difference, both of them compared to the commodity products. So, oh, yeah, for I, sure. I, I, yeah. I, but I, I don't know exactly uh, wherein those differences would be. Cool. Thanks. Just to clarify, my comment to Etienne in the in the chat there was that if you're in a high grain area, like I always I always wondered about that. All the deer that out there that we're hunting in November, uh, in in our environment, that's when our hunting season is. You know, we just went through the the grain harvesting period, and there's piles of grain everywhere. Lots of farmers have these great big huge piles. They you know if they run out of bins, they're on the ground. There's little extra piles all over the fields, like everywhere. I'm wondering how much grain all of a sudden right before hunting season that these deer are eating because they love the grain piles. Um, and how does that affect, right? Compared to an area where you're not in the grain area and the deer are out foraging and, and browsing on the, on the, you know, natural forage diet that they're supposed to have. Um, yeah. that, that's been a big question to me over the years. I don't have the answer to it, but that's. So we'll tell you one thing we've got a, a, examples around here of where people have, uh, finish their so their their grass fed and grain finished for just a short period of time and we've had examples i think are the opposite where they're grass fed and then just finished a little bit on grain towards the end uh some of these samples i think came from new zealand and, and some other places and they tend to be a little bit in the middle if 30 to 1 is the conventional beef and 3 to 1 is the grass-fed stuff, this stuff will be a little confusing. It'll be 10 to 1, 15 to 1, some, somewhere in the middle uh, like that. So I assume it's it's the same um, the same with the deer. If they're going by a big pile of corn and hanging out there for three, four weeks or something like that, they'll, they'll shift. And that's probably why when I analyze wild stuff, it's a bit more variable, right? because I have no idea what this thing is eating. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a complete guess. And may, maybe we're capturing some of that when we measure it. Great. Next up, we have Joe and Melissa. Hi guys. Hello. The question is for grazing things like pasture pork and pasture chickens, what grains or feeds or all that would be best then to up the levels in them? Because if, would you just like, obviously flax, but is there like other ones? 
Yeah. So I don't know the cost of any of these things. Okay. So I don't have to go to the store and buy them. So keep that in mind, but the, the, there's something in the pasture itself, uh, whether it's the grass or the bugs uh, that they get that has some effect. Flax is a good one. Uh, hemp. Uh, if you can buy kelp, uh, it's a pretty good one. To some extent, canola would, would be good. I don't know if you actually feed that to, to animals. The other way, though, there's kind of it's kind of a balance. So there's two ways of looking at that. You can focus on the omega-3s or you can lower the omega-6s. And so, you know, you can you can go with these these omega-3 grains or, or seeds, or you can lower the omega-6s. And the way to lower the omega-6s is to keep something like the corn to a minimal. And that, to some extent, there's only so many places for these fats to go and they compete a little bit with each other. And if you lower the competition by lowering the omega-6s, you can up the omega-3s. Uh, sometimes, so put it this way, if you have two intakes of omega-3s that are the same, ones with high omega-6s and ones with low, you'll actually get more omega-3s into the animal that has the low omega-6s. So there's, there's it's kind of a, a balance approach. You could use a combination of those two. So I'd add to that a little bit, Joe and Melissa. Um, one of the things that I've found too is, is the, a polyculture is better, right? To put a, a variety of different things in there. I've had issues with cattle when we're out grazing, swath grazing a monoculture. They get mineral imbalances. They get all sorts of different issues because of a monoculture. There's there's just not enough variety in their diet, right? Just like us. If, if you ate the same food every day, all day long for a year, you would come up with health issues. So a variety, I actually like the fact that I was buying uh, all my, my grain for my pasture pork. Um, I supplemented with grain with, uh, from an organic farmer that, of course, everybody knows organic farmers, you get all sorts of extra seeds in there, right? And he always was a little bit embarrassed about that. And I, I just had to keep reminding him, that's okay. Like, I absolutely love the extra seeds that are in there. That's more of a polyculture. So I, it, not just the omega-3 and omega-6 balance. I, you know, obviously get corn out of there, get some of those very high omega-6 crops out of there. But just to get that polyculture, to get all the zinc, the magnes, the boron, the, everything else that you need, I think we need that polyculture in the diet. So, um, yeah. I'm not afraid of weed seeds at all. Um, bring them on. It's, it's the same thing with human nutrition, uh, which is I'm a little more. One of the simplest nutritional recommendations you can make to people, just to keep it simple, is eat a variety of colors on your plate. And, and the reason that is simple, that it works, is because all those colors are different phytochemicals, different vitamins, different minerals. And if you, if you, if you only eat something that's white, you know, you, Joe, I see you've got kids that can go through an all-white diet at some point, right? Where it's just bread and pasta and these things, and eventually you start to worry about it. But if you can eat a variety of colors, you'll get all these things. And so that's kind of one of the most simple nutritional recommendations you can make. And I think, Steve, it's exactly what you're talking about. Have a variety of foods in your diet. Don't just eat white bread forever. That's my favorite book, Food Rules. <laughs> Food Rules oh, by Michael know. Pollan. It's I didn't so, know he said that. Yeah, it's so easy to read. It's this, so the long version, if you want it, Michael Pollan wrote a book called The Omnivore's Dilemma that goes into it's, it's the yeah, long version. Like His yeah. short version of that is Food Rules. And it's this, this little tiny book with 70 two chapters and some of the chapters are only like two paragraphs long right they're like it you can read the whole book in like two hours and it's these 72 rules that you will eat 
your health will be better if you follow at least six of these rules. And one of them was, and and my kids, you know, heard it for years and my nephew or my nephews and nieces heard it for years and they still bug me every time I go down there about these rules. The one rule was that every meal you have to eat at least five colors, right? There was some really neat rules in that episode. I would highly recommend that book to anybody. Uh, Never eat anything that your grandmother wouldn't recognize. Apparently ketchup and mustard don't count as a color. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and then you mix them together and you get a third color. Right? There we go, exactly. But I allowed relish because it's made from cucumbers. That was a big debate with my nieces. Boy, they were like mad because ketchup and mustard didn't count, but relish I allowed. So um, anyway, that was a really good book. And that's exactly what you just said. Those, those different colors. You bet. One of the other things to note when feeding cattle. So this is something that we've noticed over time is we have a lot of stinging nettle in different areas. Like, you know, in 3,200 acres, there's a lot of lowland. There's a lot of stinging nettle. Stinging nettle is very high in iron. It's high in a lot of micronutrients. I don't know about the omega-3s, Richard. I'm guessing that it's probably high in that as well. Grab, grab a piece and send it in the mail. We'll check. I will. It's it's basically like spinach. It's very similar in composition to spinach. Anyway, when you turn a herd of cattle out, if they have had a mineral package, they won't go near the stinging nettle. They'll leave it to last. If they have not had a mineral package, the stinging nettle is the first thing they're going to eat. So that's just something to, to keep in mind. Like the cattle kind of know, like if you give them the option, they're they're smarter than they look. Kind of yeah, like a and, pregnant and woman. They I'm know what they want pregnant. to eat. Or smarter than they look. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and there's some evidence. It's not as good, but there's definitely some evidence in, in more controlled animal studies with protein. Uh, and animals will, will, you know, if you give them different bowls with different amounts of protein, that they'll figure it out themselves to, to some extent uh, with rats. And it's a little more controversial with humans, but uh, there definitely are. My understanding is people with scurvy when they're on the uh, the boats would dream of fruit and and, and fresh things, right? So there the, the definitely are cues that we can get there. It's just, as we we're saying, you can get caught up today in in the food supply because you think you're getting something and it's not actually in there. Right. And you're not right. Um, Another question we had come in and this was through a private message. Can you ask about GMO food products or even GMO feed ingredients for meat products? If they affect the body's ability to absorb nutrients or other possible effects. Yeah. So GMO is a controversial one and I'm, I'm not a whiz at it, but so let me tell you what I liked about GMO. So GMO was really big when it was like, well, we've got this population in, in Africa and they eat a certain type of rice and the rice doesn't have vitamin A in it. But if we can modify the rice with genetic techniques, we can get vitamin A in it and we can cure blindness in those populations. And so I think there's some lots of utility for this, right? The, the catch with GMO to me is, what does it do to the insects that are then eating some nutrient that they've never eaten? And do they grow faster? Do you get more aphids or do you get less aphids or do butterflies not grow wings? So there's, it's a complicated little area. Luckily our bodies are, and, and cow's bodies are pretty good with digestion. So what they, what they do in these is they insert a gene and the gene 
kind of like kind of like these new uh, mRNA vaccines encode something and then you make a protein when we or cows eat proteins we break them down and we digest them and and um and so there's not usually a consequence unless you were to put like a fish protein into something it shouldn't be and people were allergic to it so usually we're pretty good at digesting them the, another broader concern with some of these things is we've got a problem. People aren't eating vitamin A, so they're, they're, they're having um, vision issues. And sometimes we're putting a Band-Aid on it, right? Uh, and the GMO approach can be a Band-Aid maybe to, to a bigger problem. Sometimes you're bleeding, a Band-Aid works pretty good. But but if you're going to keep cutting yourself, you know, you, you got to be a little careful with it. So, you know, GMO techniques um, from a human nutrition perspective, although they're controversial, I haven't seen anything that said that's really bad. You shouldn't eat it, you know, with the exception if you were to put an allergen in. Often with GMO techniques, they're taking things out, which it is what it is. It's not, you're not going to be allergic to it, but it, but it's sometimes it's, it's like the supplement. It's like, well, we really need this or we don't need that. So ah, let's take the shortcut. Right. And sometimes the shortcut doesn't quite pay off. And, and there are examples where it pays off very well. And there are probably some uh, where, where it doesn't. I, I agree with your na- analogy hundred percent, Richard. I, I've heard that story about the vitamin A in the rice for years. And every time I'm just saying, I'll send you some stinging nettle, right? It's loaded <laughs> with everything. Forget about the rice. Just add stinging nettle to your stew, right? And you don't have to worry about it. And again, it, it's that symptom versus a problem, right? The problem is they're just eating rice, right? They're eating a, yeah, a monoculture yeah. diet because that's all they have available. You know, throw a little bit of, you know, if they can get some chicken or some something else or some, you know, add something like stinging nettle to the stew. I'm sure they have a, a weed over there that's similar to stinging nettle that nobody even realizes you could put in your, you know, in your food and, and it would, it would be that supplement. The, the problem is we're focused on rice because that's the food, right? That's what we eat. We'll add something to it that is loaded in minerals and vitamins, seaweed, kelp, something that's that's already got all that in it and that band-aid solution that i always look at that every problem i have on my farm is it a symptom or a problem are we addressing it with a band-aid or are we actually solving the problem yeah and and, and sometimes it's really hard to see right and it takes you a little while to to figure out what whether it's if it's just a symptom and you're just addressing a symptom or or you're addressing the root cause i I think it can be quite complicated sometimes Yeah, I don't think that, you know, I I get asked the question about GMOs quite often and I don't necessarily, I don't think GMOs in and of themselves are necessarily good or bad. I think that it really depends on, first of all, what, what they're being created to do and what they're changing. And the only question that I have about them is, okay, what else are they doing on top of what they meant to change? Because I have found that we are not always or ever smarter than what nature has already given us. We try to be, but, but we, we can't always compete. So that would be. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, Amber. So one, going back to the omega threes, one thing that's shown up is, so, you know, there's only so much fish in the ocean. So what do we do? We, we farm fish, right? Just like you guys, but it's fish. And so, but what do you feed your fish? Well, if you feed them uh, corn, they 
don't really look like fish. They they look like something else. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> not a big, not that shocking. But this, you know, people don't realize it when they see their fish. And you can add a little pink food coloring to it to make sure it's got that not pink coloring, but pink dye to make sure it's got the right color, right? To confuse people, right? Trick trick them with these kinds of things. So the other option is you can feed your farm fish fish. Okay, that's expensive, uh, and you know, people do this, uh, but but ecologically, it's not a great idea because, you know, that food chain thing uh, creates problems for everything. So one of the things they've been developing is, well, let's take plants and make them GMO so they can make the fish oils in them. And then let's feed uh, those plants to fish. And they could, okay, okay, you, you know, it's a, it's a neat idea, right? And then some ecologists come around and they they, they start studying these plants and they dose, I don't want to say a butterfly or a moth. I'm sometimes not the best at distinguishing the two. They're very similar to me. One's wings opens closed, but it doesn't matter. These things never eat fish oils, never through the whole course of history. Then they land on these plants and they start eating the, the leaves of the plants. And it turns out they have impairments in their wing development, right? So these, these molecules, these omega-3s are potent to some extent. They're doing things in our brain. They're doing things with inflammation. We've evolved to handle them, but you start giving them to animals or insects that have never seen them, you might get good effects, you might get bad effects. So Amber, I completely agree with you. You got an idea, it seems good. And in, 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 a, in a vacuum, it's a great idea. It'll work, but when you start applying it in the real world, it's complicated and other things happen. So, so just so you know where the story ends is they said, well, now we'll make genetically modified plants so that the omega-3s are just in the seeds. So that way the the um, the insects aren't eating the leaves. So we'll see where that goes, right? Until somebody figures out that some worm eats them <laughs> and grows to the size of something in a movie or something, right? But but yeah, they you know they're very useful tools for very useful solutions, but we, we got to be careful with them. I think human beings as a race struggle with the Dunning-Kruger effect, and we all think that we're way smarter than we actually are. And yeah, it's a it's a big wake up call when we realize that, wait, I don't know as much as I think I know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's why I almost worry on a talk like this, because yeah, I have a decent idea of the field of nutrition, what we know, what we don't know. I'm pretty good at metabolism. We got the brain metabolism stuff, but, but then the food supply, right. It's, and, and, you know, I'm sure we'd have economists listening to us right now saying, no, you can't do that. That's not the way the commodity system works. Da, 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 da. And, you know, and I make those errors because, uh, because I don't know food economics uh, that well. You do pretty I've well. Always, <laughs> I've always heard that science is about 10% efficient, right. For every one change that we make, there's nine other effects that we don't know about yeah no doubt you know this obviously technology is beautiful right now and you know the things i see in the lab and the machines we have there it's amazing what we can do and i think the curiosity of it is beautiful but you know the person who figured out to take running water from the streets and, and you know, make a plumbing system, save more lives than, than you can imagine. Right. So some of these uh, we'll see where it goes, but it's, it's, it's tricky because things are complicated and they're interconnected. And, and when you don't understand something and you change something, you're like, well, you know, this makes sense. You know, it's why we actually do studies, right? Because we think we understand how something works. And if you're a mathematician with just equations, you'd be like, I got it. I'm done. 
the, the equations add up, everything's good. But when you're a biologist, you have to realize there's things you don't know. So when you do the experiment, one of those things you don't know bites you and and just messes the results up and it's backwards from what you thought and then you have to redraw how you think it works to 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 fit in that experiment so yeah i'm with you steve we uh i think we know things well the problem is at the forefront of science right it's right where we're, we're not sure what we're doing that it's just complicated we, we look at individual parts of a system instead of the, the whole system and that's where it's impossible to know all the effects of one change. Uh, totally. And, and you know, the brain's been a big one like that. I think because I'm interested in the brain and nutrition, you know, I have to know something about digestion. I have to know something about the liver. The, the heart actually pumps the blood, which circulates and gets nutrition to the brain. And, but, you know, not you can't be a specialist in everything. And you start realizing at some point, this is just too much, right? I got to add to that. You have to know something about the gastrointestinal reflexes. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, if anybody you do. knows what that means. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, the fact is, and, and you guys are better at this than me, the, the food supply, how much can you do? What are the seasons? You, you know, you, you guys are doing this in Alberta. How is it different from Hawaii, et cetera, et cetera, right? And there's a, there's a lot of variables. And I'm sure you've had got things that work well on your farm that don't work on your neighbor's farm and definitely don't work on a farm far away, right? If you because ask our neighbors, nothing that we do would work. <laughs> okay. I'm curious, Richard, are you doing this? podcast from hawaii no no I <laughs> he brings up hawaii i'm starting to wonder where you are <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm in toronto right now and i'm actually at my office and it's uh i'm a little bit jealous if you're in hawaii it, yeah, I, I would be too. I, I'm dreaming about Hawaii. Let's just say that. I'm, hope, I'm hoping uh, we, we can get some of this pandemic under control and, uh, you know, have a good March break. Let's just say that. Soon. Next up, we have Claire. You've been waiting so patiently, Claire. Hi, how's it going? No worries at all. Um, thanks for a great talk. And it's great to um, hear from you all. So I'm a bit sleepy. It's 2 a.m. here. So, um, so I'm leaving my camera off. I said I look like Kramer from Seinfeld at the moment with my hair. <laughs> I'm really messy. Um, I'm just wondering, Richard, what kind of nuts would you have you done any research on, particular uh, nut tree varieties or any type of nuts? Like we've hazelnuts here in this part of the world. But, yeah, um, so they're meant to be good in Amigos, but a few other ideas. Yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things with nuts. And, and, and here's a big thing with nutrition. I'm going to just back up. And then, Steve, you remember the question in case I go off on a tangent and I lose myself here. Okay. There's a couple ways to look at nutrition. And, you know, I've talked about, I worry about supplements, you know, because you don't, you, they're a band aid and these kinds of things. One of the nice things about nutrition is um, if you eat a healthy food, you're also not eating an unhealthy food. So if you have a nice healthy dinner, you're probably displacing an unhealthy dinner. And, you know, you tend to pair, you know, maybe you have a, a, a nice you know, glass of wine or something instead of a soft drink with it. It's just the way it works. And so I think nuts are neat from two perspectives. I think I remember the question, so I can keep going here. One is that nuts have fiber in them. They have uh, lots of healthy fats in them. Uh, the fats are more like the fats usually in olive oils. There are a couple exceptions. Walnuts 
um, tend to be um, a pretty good source of, of omega-3s in terms of the, the nut family. But the other thing I like about nuts is what they displace. And if you're sitting there, and Claire, maybe you're asking this from an animal feed perspective, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm talking about human nutrition, but we'll, we'll go down that perspective after. If you're going to reach for a bag of potato chips or a bag of nuts, it's a no-brainer. Grab the nuts, okay? And then, you know, is one nut more healthy than the other nut? Sure, sure. Maybe walnuts are better than a, a peanut. But they're so far off the scale compared to the bag of potato chips that I think that I think it doesn't matter, right? You know, when you get the the top two teams in the league are, you know, winning every game by a hundred points, sometimes, you know, it's so, you know, are we better than team A, team B, and we're fighting over these small little differences at the top, not recognizing that they're they're gonna slaughter everything else. And I think nuts uh, fall into that perspective. So I hope that's what you're asking, Claire. If you're asking what nuts to feed animals, the only one I know is the famous, uh, uh, the black ham from uh, southern Spain, which is really beautiful example of I think of culinary uh, stuff. It's um, in in Spain. There's a spot where the um, it's a black walnut falls, and they let the pigs go out and eat it, and it turns the ham uh, black because of the colors for it, and it gets uh, a little bit more of this walnut uh, fat in it, and it's absolutely delicious stuff. I can't afford it, but it's uh, it's really fantastic. I, you know, I say I can't afford it. Sometimes on New Year's Eve, I'll, I'll treat with a little bit of it, and maybe it's the pandemic, and I'm, you know what, I'll do it this year. Sorry, I don't have much to add to that. Um, my experience with nuts is my family thinks I'm nuts. So I'm full of omega-3s, I think. So I think we're good. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of private messages right now about <laughs> feeding nuts to pigs because I'm a pig farmer. Right? I was going to say that. I think that one of the things that you have to think about if we're talking about feeding animals nuts is the expense like I go into the grocery store and honestly, outside of peanuts, I probably can't afford anything else either. No, but what they're doing in Spain is that this is where they're growing naturally in trees and they're falling right uh, to the ground and they let the pigs go out in the forest and eat them. Right. So there's a minimal cost in that. But it's and it's also a really cute story because they're taking, you know, it's the they're taking, you know, the natural things growing in this area. If you happen to have a bunch of this, I think you guys are doing the same things with what you grow on your farm. You just don't grow nuts on your farm. Right. And so it's it's just an example of a, a, a different place. And because it's from Spain, it sounds cool. And they can charge a lot of money. They can charge a lot of money for it. See, and that's one of the things that I really consider when looking at feed sources and even the types of animals that we should be having on our farms is every area is a little bit different. To be perfectly fair, I, I personally believe that we would be better off grazing horses and eating horse meat in Alberta because horses can paw through the snow and ice, right? We our environment is better suited to horses and animals of that nature. Um, if you're in Ireland or Scotland or Ireland, like you are Claire, um, you would probably be more suited to doing sheep or something like that because of the, the wet environment cattle are going to stomp out the, the fields and stuff. Whereas sheep 
or goats are going to do a little bit better. Um, I, I think that that might be one of the problems with our agricultural systems is we try to make things fit where they don't necessarily belong. So we truck nuts to our pigs in Alberta. And, you know, and I, I really think that's a big, big issue. Well, we talked about that earlier about the seaweed, right? I mean, we're talking about the health aspect of the, the meat, but what about the environmental aspect of it too? I mean, I've had this debate hundreds of times over the last few years about trucking seaweed in from the coast. Like we're a, you know, Alberta is a landlocked province. Uh, how, what is the carbon effect, you know, if of bringing seaweed all the way from the ocean into here to feed our animals, right? Like, okay. So they reduce the methane emissions by a little bit. Well, what were the methane emissions to harvest that seaweed and truck it all the way out here? Right. I'm pretty sure we're still on a, on a, a net loss in that situation. Yeah, and I think you got to factor a lot of these things. Obviously, you know, a popular thing this past year was was what they call uh, buttergate. You know, the idea that uh, cows are eating uh, palm oil from Malaysia being shipped into Canada, and and you got to you're right. You got to factor in a, a lot of these things uh, when you're doing this. Yeah, when they could just go out and eat grass and and solve the problem on both, you know, right? Like it's a band aid that costs us way more than what a, you know, the actual solution to the problem is right here. I think we are at time guys. And I think that's actually a really interesting note to end on. Uh, I'd really like to thank uh, Dr. Richard Bazinet. I mean, this was uh, amazing. Like I was really excited about this when I'm, this is, like I said, this has been something that's been bothering me since I was six years old eating bananas. And, and this is a very exciting topic for me. And it's, it's been that way for a long time. So I really appreciate you being here, uh, Dr. Bazinet. I, uh, it just been a, uh, an honor for me to have you on here. Big thank you out to the Gateway Research Organization to make this happen. And uh, yeah, um, stick around for after networking, networking. Dr. Bazinet, would you like to just have a, a final little bit of a say and in, in, uh, whatever you would like to say? Oh, whatever I'd like to say. You know, you know what? This is great because one of the problems, um, and we talked about this a little bit, Steve, is that um, we, we work in silos uh, and, you know, we specialize in different things and we, we have different experiences. And and so, I, I you know, when I hear these kinds of questions, it gives me some sort of insight into to how to, you know, what people are doing, what they're not doing. And nobody learns more walking through a farm than me because I see things, you know, for the, Wow, that cow's eating something besides grass, right? And it, it's kind of striking to me. But, but I think these kinds of things that you guys are doing are really important. And you know, hopefully, you know, I was the speaker, so hopefully, some people here caught some of my perspectives from it. And you know, maybe there's things that work and don't work. But the idea is we can, you know, find some common ground, find some common interests, find some common problems, and uh, it'd be great to do some some research for this. One of the one of the problems. I've got trying to get into to this industry, you know, to do science isn't cheap. It, it costs money, it costs research money. But if but if enough people get interested in, and I'm always amazed, you know, how many people are into doing different kinds of things and, and what are the consequences of them. And, you know, I'm sure you guys see things in the animals and the, the, the pastures that you think are doing better. And, you know, uh, does this relate to, to human health? So hopefully, 
you know, these networking things. Uh, I'm glad you took somebody maybe a little outside the box like me and we can, uh, you know, in the long term have more conversations, which will lead to some collaboration. So thank you, uh, you both for having me. It's my pleasure.